0: Mormon Stories podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at MormonStories.org. To make a donation to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the MormonStories.org website. Thank you for listening. On December 28, 2006, Deseret Book, which is owned by the LDS Church, announced the acquisition of two of its top competitors, Seagull Book and Tape and its sister company, Covenant Communications. Based in American Fork, Utah, Covenant Communications is one of the largest publishers of LDS-themed books and games. Siegel Book and Tape is an LDS-oriented discount book chain with 26 stores throughout Utah, Idaho, Arizona, and California. According to Sherry Dew, President and CEO of Deseret Book Company, quote, "...after lengthy analysis and discussion spanning many months, we reached the conclusion that this acquisition could benefit both Siegel and Deseret Book customers, as well as authors working with both Covenant Communications and Deseret Book Publishing. We feel that Deseret Book as a full-service book retailer and Siegel as a well-established discount book retailer not only both enjoy tremendous brand loyalty, but between them service the LDS market well." Our strategy is to continue to build both brands," end quote. Mr. Colford, the founder and owner of both Siegel and Covenant, adds. Quote, "This is the perfect transition for Covenant and Siegel. Deseret Book was an ideal choice to make this acquisition, and I fully expect the companies to complement each other going forward." End quote. But many members of the broader LDS literary and publishing communities, as voiced on blogs such as MotleyVision.org, are concerned. Does this concentrate too much power in the hands of Deseret Book? Could this mean higher prices and less choice for consumers? How will this affect Mormon authors? Finally, how might this impact both the LDS Church and Mormon culture overall? On today's Mormon Stories podcast, we will learn a bit about the history of the Mormon publishing industry, and we'll discuss this acquisition and how it might be good and bad for Mormons everywhere. Your story, today on Mormon Stories podcast. As first in our uh, series on the Deseret Book Acquisition of Siegel Books and Tapes, we're pleased to have with us Kent Larson. Kent, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Kent, as I understand it, you're the president of a a small company called Mormon Arts and Letters. Is that right?
1: That's right. We're an LDS publisher based here in New York City, something unusual by itself. And uh, we're... Uh, hoping to provide something new and a little bit different to the LDS market than what you traditionally find through companies like Desert Book and Covenant and Cedar Fort. Uh, we we're trying to, to uh, promote the high end of, of LDS literature. Uh, so,
0: as, And almost as an act of love, even though it's a for-profit company, as I understand it.
1: It is a for-profit company, but, uh, you know, there's – in a lot of ways, not a lot of money to be gained if you're a very small company. You you've got to somehow, over years, build up to be able to really make any kind of any kind of money in this industry. I think.
0: Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll get into that deeply, but just uh, to start out with, go to mormonpavilion.com, dot com, and you guys can check out uh, Kent's company. Well, Kent, um, you have a lot of experience and, and knowledge about the LDS publishing industry. So uh, I'd love to begin by having you just tell us a little bit about yourself. This is Mormon stories, so we love to hear stories. Tell us a bit about you, your background, and what led you into this industry to start with.
1: Great. Well, I, I grew up in in the Washington D.C. area, and um, kind of the '60s and '70s, um, and you know, we were very far from the center of Mormon culture. And I, I think that uh, we that as a result, I was kind of a little bit out of it, really, in terms of, of cultural. Cultural aspects of Mormonism. Um, we didn't really see anything in terms of Mormon culture where I was until the the mid 70s when somebody put on a production of uh, of The Order Is Love there. You know the Carolyn Pearson and Lex De Azevedo play musical. Um, and then that, following that, there was a production of My Turn on Earth and probably Saturday's Warrior and those kind of things there. Um, but you know there wasn't a lot uh, or very much access to LDS books and and, uh, and any idea of what was going on in LDS culture uh there um except for what we came to see you know at that time there wasn't any prohibition in the church against having bookstores in the chapels and so uh in the uh, foyer of uh, the chapel where i grew up there was a, a you know a kind of a cabinet full of LDS books um Uh, Few and far between, really, not a lot of stuff there, but there were some LDS books there. It was just hard to make that connection where we were into uh, LDS culture. Um, So instead, I was kind of influenced by the social and cultural movements of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, Watergate had a pretty big impact. Um, I remember in in sixth grade being in... (laughs) just after Watergate had happened and being in the playground of my elementary school and somebody, being Mormon and, you know, my family was fairly conservative and Republican and uh, somebody brought up Watergate, and I remember telling them clearly, Watergate, Schmodergate, it'll all blow over and nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But after that, I kind of got, you know, involved with, uh, well, not involved, I got interested in, in Understanding a lot of that, I started reading uh, Doonesbury. Sure. <laughs> you know, the the comic strip, and and that influenced me quite a bit. And I think the, the overall the social movements did have a quite a profound effect on my on my life and my thinking. Um, I'm still somewhat suspicious of uh, of cover-ups and uh, uh, of uh, larger uh, companies and organizations and government to a degree too. You know, I just I don't trust them as as pe- perhaps as much as I should.
0: Right. So not necessarily a huge Bush fan.
1: Uh, not at this point. I mean, I've, I'm still a Republican, but uh, you know, I don't know. I think this guy makes Republicans look bad. I think we should have we should have gotten rid of him. Not a good not a good president. Okay. Not in my opinion.
0: So that's a nice cultural fermentation for what came later.
1: Yeah, i i, I I've always been a pretty big reader, too. You know, I I remember being in in elementary in. Well, it was actually in junior high school. I I started, found a little section in the school library of science fiction, and there I went. (laughs) Right. I'd dive into a book and surface a day later or something like that, you know, once it was finished, and uh, my homework suffered and all that stuff. So, an avid reader. (laughs) uh, I was definitely an avid reader. Uh, um, You know, summers were heaven because I could finish uh, four or six or more novels in a week, and uh, it was great.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So um, by the time I got to high school, I think a lot of this, this influence really kind of started gelling in my life. I uh, got involved with a little student uh, alternative newspaper, really kind of a mimeographed opinion sheet that we'd pass around to the other students on, in, in, uh, in the school uh, at the lunch tables, you know. I don't think we did more than about, well, we might have done 10 issues or something like that lot of fun right <laughs> but uh, uh not very responsible journalism that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> it Was high school what do you want
0: sure no that's exciting though
1: it was a, it was a lot of fun I, I i guess at that point really the bug of wanting to get into publishing of getting the written word out and distributed to people really bit me and ever since i've been you know extremely interested in in that kind of thing uh that kind of exploration of how to how to tell people what's going on in the world.
0: Sure. And wake them wake up a bit, right?
1: Yeah, well, I think so, too, yes. Um, people, people. I think we all do that. We we kind of dive into our own little worlds, and, and only things that are important are the things that actually affect us on a day-to-day basis, and uh, there's more to life than that. And by focusing so narrowly, we often miss not only fun and interesting things, but also things that eventually affect us.
0: Yeah, sure. Being short-sighted. Yeah. Exactly. So tell us about your BYU experience. I'm fascinated about that.
1: Well, I, I should mention I, I I served a mission in Portugal, and uh, that had a, a fairly um, substantial impact on my life, um, perhaps more than most missionaries. Um, but I only attended BYU following my mission. I uh, graduated in, in 1988. Um, and and. You know, my mission language led me to get a degree not only in in accounting, which I figured I could make money at, but in Portuguese, hmm. um, and uh, which is you know, that's a little unusual too. I think. Well, while I was there, I was quite active and got involved in a lot of different things. Um, involved in the student government at BYU, the predecessor to the current BYUSA thing that they've got now. Um, and just to just to
0: tell tell the. I mean, for me, that's a huge thing. I was at BYU when the student review was still popular. It's an underground newspaper that allowed yeah, you to get an alternative to the daily universe. Uh, and here I am talking to one of the founders. Uh, what, a, what a delight.
1: <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Friends and I, some friends and I, we, a friend of mine one day started putting posters up around campus Tully without permission, of course, saying that we should meet at a certain time on a certain day. This was during spring term, I think it was those outside of the normal term, normal semesters, um, and uh, suggesting that there needed to be alternatives to the, to the universe. And I think we met with 10 or 15 people that day, um, and everybody complained about the universe, and, and everybody said it was a good idea. And at the end of the day, I think three or four of us really stayed around for more than um, you know five minutes after everything ended to talk about what we would do and how this would actually came to happen. Did you feel and, all, did you feel
0: all sneaky and subversive, or did you feel idealistically not, not driven? Not too
1: much. Uh, I think we felt mostly idealistically driven. We were looking interested in finding a, a publication that was pretty balanced and fair. Um, remember, I still, especially at that point in time, I was more conservative than I am now. Certainly, more uh, involved, you know, more toe the line of Republican, Republican Party that I am now, and and I looked at it and I I thought it was a great idea. You know, I thought this was an idea if you had a balanced um, uh, publication that you could actually talk about things and get people to think about um, about their their feelings about issues.
0: But but uh, but if you were ideologically aligned with the church and with, uh, you know. Even probably many of the substance of of the Daily Universe. Why did you feel a need for a more balanced approach?
1: Because the Daily Universe is and st- still is today much more a lab paper. That is a paper that exists for students that are learning the details and the techniques of journalism than a paper that is meant to serve the news and the needs of the students. Um, the you know the Daily Universe. Yeah, we'd see cover uh stories all there all in there all the time about you know local issues to Springville and Heber and other cities around Provo that where there was no student population to speak of um it was just you know they suggested to the student who was the journalism major oh we'll go and cover the you know the city meetings in Heber and so they'd do that and right. as as students we felt like it was completely unresponsive to what we needed and what we wanted to speak about.
0: And at the time... And in addition, oh.
1: there were issues that came up on campus that um, that bothered people. Um, uh, a good example is, and a, a minor example in a, in a lot of ways, but a good example was uh, uh, an issue that had happened, I think it was a year or so before the student review was founded. Um, a couple of students in the Cougar Eat had, um, you know, seen or discovered cockroaches as they were going about their cleaning and everything that they were supposed to do at their jobs in the Cougarate. And uh, they reported it not just to their bosses, but also to, they wrote a letter to the editor or they reported to somebody off campus, or I don't know exactly what it was, and they were fired, okay? Right. And the Daily Universe wasn't covering the issue, You know, should students be fired for reporting this stuff outside of their chain of command? Right. Um, Again, given my my influences in my life, I, of course, thought that they should be able to report this, you know? That whole whistleblowing function is kind of important. Um, So uh, we felt like the the Daily Universe as a result was quite unresponsive to students. Um, I don't think that that the journalism people disagreed too much. You know, a lot of them looked at it and said... Well, we're trying to train, train journalism students, we're not trying to address the needs of the community necessarily.
0: Right, right. How aware were you guys of the Seventh East Press, the predecessor to the student review?
1: Very aware. Um, when, did, were, when did that, when did, that when
0: did the light go out on that?
1: My memory is, and I, I could have this wrong, my memory is, is about 1982.
0: Okay. And we
1: started up in 1986.
0: And do we know why it went so, out of business?
1: Um, it's my understanding, and I'm no expert on it, but it's my understanding that uh, some of the um, articles printed in the 70s press uh, basically annoyed the administration. Um, they had articles that uh, dealt with, there was an interview of Sterling McMurrin, for example, where he uh, admitted that he basically didn't believe the Book of Mormon to be um, a literal um, history, But rather uh, an important book for um, you know as a mythology type thing. Right. Um, And there was you know other stories that they'd had in there. Something about a a patriarch of the church who'd had some issue come up with his life that was not very flattering. Um, Other things like that. I don't know all of the issues and all of the articles that they published, but there were plenty of articles that. that got people upset.
0: So this is the last question I'll ask, but I want to do a whole show on the student review, but um, did, did, you must have known then that the Brethren might not be keen about an, a, a new alternative newspaper. And, you Absolutely. Know, but you, but you went fact, ahead and did it happened,
1: anyway. What happened is we met with, with the administration all during that summer, uh, trying to work out the details of how we could found an alternative student newspaper and actually be on campus. Uh, and by the end of the summer, uh, we it came down to like the first week of school in that September, 1986, and we had a conversation with the um, I think it was the dean of students or it was a vice president for academic for student affairs or something like that. I'm not remembering off the top of my head the name, but um, you know we had all these meetings with him, and uh, basically at the end of that time, he he finally was honest and said, look, there's no chance. That you'll get on campus in fact there never was from day one right so that just got us angry you know and we decided okay we're off campus we never distributed through the bookstore we never distributed on campus we went out and bought a bunch of stands and put the stands up at strategic places that were entrances to campus and uh, and let people you know grab them on their way as they were um, running into campus um, that was the, the main place of distribution. There were no copies in the bookstore. One of the things that killed the Seventieth Press was exactly that. East Press was dependent on distribution through the bookstore, and we never were.
0: Right. And I and I'm sure that my listeners are understanding why I'm asking these questions because these issues are not totally irrelevant to the to the topic of the Deseret acquisition of Siegel. So,
1: absolutely, so distribution is a, still a huge issue in the LDS. Product industry and and you know a huge issue, a huge issue for for um, uh, for LDS church members regardless. Right. Um, we'll go into that later, I'm sure.
0: So tell tell us about post BYU.
1: Well, I I uh, my wife um, did better than I did. She I guess was a little bit less distracted with so many things to do, and um, she got uh, a a graduate uh, position here at Columbia University in New York City. And so we came here to New York City. Um, I found, figured with an accounting degree I could find a job, and sure enough, I soon landed a position at Henry Holton Company, um, now part of uh, the company that owns St. Martin's Press. So, you know, It's a large, traditional book publisher here in the United States. Um, and I've been kind of working on and off in the book publishing industry almost ever since. Uh, I worked at uh, uh, Bantam Doubleday Dell in addition to Holt, um, I worked at a small children's book publisher called North-South Books, which it really opened my eyes in a lot of ways to uh, issues of international publishing and um, the importance and, and what can be achieved through international publishing and some of the challenges that are there. Um, and uh, then about almost five years ago, uh, or five years ago at this point in time, I discovered a, a small company up for sale uh, called Luso Brazilian Books, which was the and still is the premier um, importer of Portuguese language materials for the United States. Um, so I purchased the the company, and now import uh, thousands of books a month from Brazil and Portugal and sell them to universities and colleges, and including BYU, of course. What types um, of books are these?
0: Like novels, like Gabriel Garcia it runs Marquez? It the or?
1: whole gamut. It's everything for from materials for learning Portuguese to Um, classics of Portuguese and Brazilian literature, to, you know, whatever the latest uh, novel is, to even translations of U.S. books into Portuguese. Um, You know, I've still got uh, a ton of copies of different Daniel Steele novels on the shelf.
0: (laughs) So no Spanish, all Portuguese.
1: All all Portuguese. We we purposely stay away from Spanish. There's tons of people that are doing Spanish, and we're basically the only ones doing Portuguese. So we keep to our niche.
0: So you have a, a tremendous amount of experience in, in New York-style, hardcore commercial publishing,
1: then? I, I do. Um, I don't pretend to know everything. Um, I, I wouldn't put myself out as an expert, but I do have a lot of experience, and I've been studying the industry ever since. Uh, while I was at Bantam, I got an, uh, an MBA from New York University, and while I was there, I was definitely paying attention to um, in how what I was learning coincided and worked with uh, book publishing and what the differences were and you know I think I found some holes in my education and my MBA as a result because um, book publishing doesn't fit the traditional products style marketing that they teach in in business schools Um, you know I've learned in other ways too there are academic journals for publishing that I've followed over the years and um, professional books that I look at and read and you know, I still read
0: Publishers Weekly. Right. Um, wow. So well, that, that um that's excellent. It's an excellent uh, background to maybe bring us up to date a bit on the history of the LDS book industry. So would you mind diving in a bit? Sure. And bring um, us up to speed on uh, what, what led to this important moment last week?
1: Okay. Well, LDS book publishing has is, is got quite a long history, much longer than, than what... Um, um, than what most people realize. Um, I mean, uh, for example, there was a Wikipedia article um, that I ran into a year or so ago. It was not a long time ago at all, just a year or so ago, about the LDS publishing industry, and they had it starting in the 1970s, and like there was nothing going on before that. And um, it's just not right. Right. Um, Publishing started, of course, almost as early as the Church. The Book of Mormon is, of course, a publication. But by 1937, you had books like uh, Parley P. Pratt's A Voice of Warning that were published as missionary tracks. And not long after that, you had even works of fiction and poetry coming out. Um, The missionaries that would go around, uh, one of the tasks they would have as they went around to different cities would be, especially in the principal cities, to start a newspaper. Here in New York, uh, they started a newspaper called The Prophet, which was later became uh, the New York Messenger, a weekly newspaper, all Mormon stuff, and there'd be poetry in it. There'd be even some short stories. Uh, Probably P. Pratt wrote a little short story, for example, called uh, "A Dialogue of Joseph Smith and the Devil," huh. and um, it was totally uh, uh, didactic. You know, totally uh, a piece that was meant to try to persuade people to believe in Joseph Smith, uh, but it was fiction. <laughs> Um, that kind of style of publishing continued for for many years, up through the 1870s or 1880s, um, and independent actual publishing companies really started to exist in, by the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, at least with the big, with the company George Q. Cannon and Sons, that was of course a member of the first presidency, who owned this little book publishing outfit, and he would uh, publish. Um, materials that uh, were church-related, most of them doctrinal, but there were some uh, fiction going on. Um, I believe he was the one that published uh, the book Added Upon, uh, a novel by a man named Nephi Anderson, published in 1898, and that until it went out of print in, I think it was 2001, was the longest, other than the Book of Mormon, the longest piece of fiction uh, that had been in print in the LDS market. It had been printed for literally more than a hundred years. Wow! Um, and if you read it, you kind of get the feeling, oh, Saturday's Warrior was based on this. <laughs> right. There's a lot of similar, similar thing themes and ideas in it.
0: What's the title again?
1: Uh, Added upon.
0: Added upon? Huh?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping to to do a a new uh, critical edition of Added Upon as part of. Uh, the works that we'll do in the next year or two. Um, it needs to be back in print. I think it's an important book. Hmm. Um, maybe not a great written, but it's certainly an important book. Right. So, um, by the time the early 20th century came along, uh, you know, 1910, 1920, uh, George Q. Cannon and Sons merged with a, a, a printing operation that the Church had under the what was called the Deseret Sunday School Union, the predecessor of, of you know, the Sunday school organization in the church today. And they merged that together, and it became Desert Book. And Desert Book really controlled the entire market, except for a little bit of private publishing, up through roughly the 1950s. Um, At that point in time, a company called Bookcraft was started. And uh, Bookcraft, I think, was revolutionary for the market at the time, simply because it, it published stuff that Desert Book never imagined could be published. Um, they also managed managed to get um, a lot of uh, general authorities to write books for them, who hadn't or wouldn't hadn't been able to get contracts with Desert Book. So um, well, what what were some really of the what, the right, what right were some niche.
0: of the hallmark publications of uh, I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of any of the banner significant publications of bookcraft that maybe some of our oh, listeners might have heard of?
1: Probably the most probably the most important was. Um, mormon doctrine
0: the first edition um,
1: the first edition of mormon well the second edition too but it didn't switch publishers um that alone is an interesting story because um as i understand it um mormon doctrine was published without the um the knowledge of the first presidency uh even though bruce r mcconkey was um
0: the son-in-law of, joseph, the son-in-law fielding of joseph fielding smith yeah
1: okay um david o. mckay was the prophet at the time and when the book came out, um, the First Presidency became very concerned because they felt that there were problems with it, and they were getting a lot of concerns that, and, and complaints that the book had a lot of errors, doctrinal errors in it. Right. Um, and we've, we've actually covered that. Is,
0: we actually interviewed uh, Greg Prince for his David O. McKay book, and we talked about that.
1: Um, right, yeah. The, the story is that there's apparently a thousand errors that uh, right. Mary G. Romney came up with in the first edition. And, of course, it wasn't until... Um, Joseph Fielding Smith was more or less uh, uh, running the church that um the, the second edition came out. And so, was um, was
0: was Bookcraft selling uh, a lot more books to the to the consumer public than Desert Book was at the time in the '60s? Then
1: I don't know about more, but they certainly had their niche and were getting a lot of general authority books that Desert Book was not. They uh, you know th- that incident with um, with Mormon doctrine led the church to. Um, Clamped down on the general authorities and basically told the general authorities, "Look, you know, you can't go and sign book publishing contracts and publish books without the the uh, permission of the first presidency. You've got to go through this process right. because we don't want this kind of thing happening anymore." Yeah. Um, so ever since, in order for a general authority to publish a book, they have to get the permission of uh, of the brethren to go ahead.
0: The Bruce McConkey rule.
1: It is, yeah, <laughs> it is. Okay. Um, I'm sure that, I mean, I know Bookcraft moved on to other things. They did, they did fiction much more than Desert Book did, uh, and so on and so forth. Um,
0: it was a pretty much a household name in the 70s and 80s, wasn't
1: it? I think it was, and, um, and, and it came along at, at the right place. I mean, they, they had a good 10, 15 years of being really the only alternative to Desert Book as, as you know, independent bookstores started to spring up here and there. You know, you had, like my own experience, you had a lot of uh, wards and branches where they'd have their little bookstore in the in closet there somewhere in the building, the church building. Now something the church tells you you can't do anymore, but that that's definitely the way it was done in those days. Um, and so you had networks like that. Then you had independent bookstores that began to spring out, up often near temples at least outside of of the mountain west so when the los angeles temple was put in um you know years later of course some other uh, an L- independent lds bookstore was put in there by the near the temple um when the washington dc temple was opened in 1974 if if i'm i think i've got that right um it wasn't too many years later that somebody opened uh, this is the place bookstore which was right near the temple and has been within a mile of the temple ever since
0: still there and uh, still there, privately still going
1: owned strong the estimate that i heard is that they do over a million dollars a year in business wow um it it was you know it was a pretty important business pretty important store really
0: and there's no Deseret book near the washington dc temple then
1: no there isn't oh. um uh I think in a large way, they, they've kind of taken that space, you know, and, and they have the reputation. Everybody knows it's there. So that's where you go. Huh. Um, in Do recent years, they've probably had a fall off in sales uh, for a variety of reasons, um, principally because of the Internet. Right. Um, but um, you know, as far as I know, it's still there going strong.
0: And that's probably a bookstore you frequented uh, regularly yeah. in the 70s, huh? And I, the 80s. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Do we know anything? When, oh, go ahead.
1: The, the bookstore in in Southern California near the Los Angeles Temple, um, and this is a recurring problem that actually has reflections in this the current merger. Um, the the owners there eventually wanted to get out, and uh, so they ended up selling that store to Desert Book, and now it's a Desert Bookstore. Hmm. Uh, that has also happened quite a bit over the years. Um, the owners of of stores will get to the point where you know they want to retire they they want to get out it's time for them to get out for whatever reason and they have to look around and figure out who can buy it who can buy these stores um and desert book is in a lot of ways it's the main place you can sell them
0: do we do uh, we know do we know anything about the relationship between the owners of bookcraft and the church during that heyday was there any tension do we know do we know anything about that
1: i i don't okay. not at this point okay um, it is an, an area where I'm looking to research a little bit more, and I'd like to know more, but uh, I don't really know. Okay. Um, I know that uh, the people that were behind it most recently, uh, including Corey Maxwell, who was, if I understand correctly, he's a son of uh, Neil Maxwell. Um, he's now a, a vice president at Desert Book because in 1998, when Desert Book purchased BookCraft, um, he stayed with the company, and he's been at Desert Book ever since. Hmm. Um, so, in, in that sense, I guess he couldn't—they couldn't have been too radical, right? Um,
0: okay, that makes sense. So, uh, what happened next? There's also
1: the issue that you have in the LDS market of um, keeping things, uh, for one of a better word, appropriate, keeping things doctrinally uh, acceptable to to the market, and I think that force is a big force in LDS. Book publishing in LDS bookstores, keeping things uh, so that people feel comfortable with them um, tends to keep the, especially the bookstores, in line to where they're not likely to, you know, carry things that are too, too far out. Okay. um,
0: Well, let's 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 save let's save let's drill on that drill down that in a second. Let's finish up the history real quick, if that's okay. Um, What happened to bookcraft?
1: Well. I should mention first, before we go to that, that uh, through the 1970s, there were. Uh, uh, it wasn't until the 1970s that a lot of alternative and other publishers started publishing, uh, started, started up. Okay. There was, um, for example, Trilogy Arts, which is, is I think will be looked on in the, in, in the future by people that look at this as an important development in, in LDS publishing. Trilogy Arts was, was started up to publish Carolyn Pearson's poetry books. Um, by your
0: husband, right?
1: I by Gerald. Be, I, I
0: believe her, her husband yeah, worked really hard so to help sell her books.
1: It's um you know, it, it was a, a kind of a grassroots very revolutionary thing and they put you know, they put these wonderful uh uh drawings by Trevor Southey on the cover. They're just gorgeous stuff. Um and it was really an important early innovation in, in LDS publishing, that you could have somebody that was publishing poetry of all things. So I don't think that before that there had been too many many poetry books published, right. not specifically for the LDS market. Hmm. Um, uh, so th- that kind of wave of things is very important. You also had the new wave of Mormon literature that started at that point, with where you had people like uh, Douglas Thayer and um, uh, Don Marshall, who were publishing... Books um, Orion Books was a, a early publisher that handled I think Doug Thayer's book under the Cottonwoods um, extremely important new literature that that was not being published before because um, it, it instead of being apologetic it was trying to look at Mormons themselves and where they were um, very different really very modern uh, literature very different from even the the stuff that desert book publishes today.
0: Sure. Okay.
1: So, um, you know, throughout the, the, the industry has developed over, over time that they, by the 1980s, there was an LDS booksellers association. They hold an annual, annual convention, which attracts more than 200 wholesalers. And until recently, 200 or so booksellers, um, uh, They've, you know, the number of publishers has, has multiplied and continues to multiply substantially. Um, some of them have grown up pretty big. Uh, Siegel Book and Tape, for example, really started out as Covenant Communications, a book publisher. Well, and well before that, it was actually a, a tape publisher. They published audio tapes. Hmm. Um, that was their, their, their niche. And they went from that, and then Desert Book started doing audio tapes as a result, <laughs> Um, and Desert, and Siegel went I mean Covenant, went into book publishing, and then started their own chain of stores. And so you had Siegel Books and Tapes that that, that uh, started to grow up over the years and discount LDS books and become really the only real competition to Desert Book.
0: Do you know who the book publisher was or the publisher was for Paul H. Dunn's books and tapes? Do you have any idea? For which one? For Paul H. Dunn's. Books and tapes. Did he use bookcraft? Did he use my Deseret?
1: memory is correct, and I, I admit I could be wrong on this, but my memory is that it that it was in fact Covenant book and tape.
0: Okay. Because
1: initially they were the only ones that were doing, um, books on tape for right. the LES market.
0: I remember there used to be an they, entire wall at Deseret Book of Paul H. Dunn tapes and books mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Deseret Book. You know, public uh, had to buy a lot of this stuff and carry it. Um, okay. Now. Um, Bookcraft, of course, as I mentioned earlier, was 1998 was purchased in in uh, by Desert Book, um, and that was kind of the beginning of um, uh, a small series of acquisitions that Desert Book has made. Because after after uh, purchasing Bookcraft and and integrating that, they then purchased um, Excel Entertainment, which was um, a music producer mainly. But also was the the first distributor of uh, of LDS films and caught right on caught the whole Richard Dutcher movement of God's Army and this whole movement of LDS film that we've seen in the last uh, five years. Um, and, and then after taking in Excel, um, they've now they started up their own wholesale operation where they're now distributing the works of Smaller LDS publishers, in addition to their own, which was something new for Desert Book, um, and finally, now we've got this new merger, this new acquisition of Siegel Book and Tape and Covenant Communications. They're the sister companies. Hmm. So, um, um,
0: it's so
1: it's kind of it's kind of different. You know, you wonder if there's any place for Desert Book to go to acquire anybody else. I mean, it seems like they've taken the last. Five to seven or so years, and they've tried to grow by acquisitions instead of by opening new stores themselves. Um, and I, I think they've done so much of it. I don't know how much farther they could go with that.
0: So they they have a lot of their own authors. They publish. They're doing distribution, uh, wholesale distribution, and they're now you know acquiring lots of retail outlets. Right. Um, you know, I used to work I, I for should... my. I used to work for Microsoft. So. You know, there's a yeah. there's a tone or a sense. Is there a concern about monopolies? Is there too much power? Is it too concentrated?
1: Um, I, I, and there should be. Um, I Let me contrast this a little bit. This is something I tried to do a lot because of my own experience. I try to contrast what's going on in the LDS market with what's going on in the national market or what has gone on in the national market. Now, it, it used to be years and years and years ago that, National publishers in the United States did own their own chains of bookstores. Doubleday owned their Doubleday book shops. Okay, it was quite a famous little chain of bookstores. Okay, and it made that made some sense because you know you you needed the distribution. You needed to be able be able to get your product out there to where customers could see it and buy it. Um, But by the 1970s, that whole movement of publishers owning bookstores went away for a lot of reasons um, uh, not the least of them is that uh, it was seen as vertical integration which is something that's pre- that's protected and and uh, and um, discouraged under the antitrust laws in the United States kind of like okay. film
0: film studios owning the the movie theaters
1: Ab- exactly right you can't the the idea is it's not good for a company to own Everything from the beginning of the production process all the way to the sales to the consumer, that there ought to be more than one company along the along the lines, because it it decreases the that company's monopoly power. Okay, nobody that way can say, oh well, you can only get our books through Desert Book. Okay, right. Um, yeah, you know, Desert Book today I think's got the reach that they could just simply say. Okay, there will be no independence. independent books, LDS bookstores. Nobody right. else will sell our books. You have to buy them through Desert Book. They could then charge whatever they want, and, um, you know, we wouldn't have any choice.
0: Right. So lots of power concentrated tends to not be a good thing. Right. But would the, would the LDS market ever be of such a size that the Federal Trade Commission would ever even see it as significant enough to make some type of ruling or curtailment of that?
1: That's a good question. I was reading on on uh you know I blog on the blog org, and I've uh, of course blogged on this issue to to a degree already and uh another of the publishers a uh, man I respect fairly um fairly well uh, his take on the whole thing is desert book is an antitrust lawsuit waiting to happen. Right. Uh, I'm not willing to go that far. Sure. I don't know why antitrust law. I don't think he's an antitrust lawyer or either. I think he, I could be wrong. He may know what he's talking about. I know I don't, okay? Um, I, other than I've had a few business law classes and we cover antitrust. Right. Um, the, it does seem to me, though, that, that it's such a large concentration that, gee, if it were the entire, LDS, uh, the entire U.S. market, there's no way that the Trade Commission would let it go. Okay, because it'd be too much of a concentration. Uh, If it the thing that makes it, in my opinion, unlikely is there are alternatives for LDS publishers, maybe not great alternatives, but there are alternatives. You can go and sell your books to Amazon.com and it's then available to the same market, essentially, because Amazon.com sells everywhere that Desert Book sells. Okay. right. Is, how much of an alternative is that? Well, do LDS do LDS church members know that they can get a lot of LDS books through Amazon.com, or if not a lot, most really books through Amazon.com? I don't know. Um, I don't know how well people know that. Um, sure. Let's. Um, so maybe yeah. it's not a monopoly in that sense, right? But as I, you know. On the other hand, from a publisher standpoint, and I think from a lot of the other bookstores and the this market standpoint, if it's not legally a monopoly, it sure feels like one.
0: Sure. So let's let's we're going to come back to sort of an analysis of of where we are today and why it might be good or bad. You've done some a, a little bit of history or some thinking or an outline on the conflict between uh, Deseret Book and Siegel leading up to this acquisition. Let's talk quickly, if you don't mind, about that and then we'll yeah. talk about implications more broadly.
1: You know, I, I can't imagine that they would have gone the 15 or 20 years since Siegel has was founded and not had a certain amount of conflict, okay? They've, you know, they have to have, have disagreed over things. Um, one of the things you have to remember about the two of them is they are completely um, different models of how to sell books, Siegel Books is a discounter. And generally what that means is they're knocking something off of the price of every book. Um, You know, uh, akin to what Amazon.com does, and there are um, other companies, retail organizations in the national market, that do the same kind of thing. When I was growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, there was a company called Crown Books. And the uh, guy that owned that company used to put out advertisements, and he'd say, at Crown Books... You know, every I think books cost too much, and every book is discounted. So, you know, they were all discounted, every book, something off of what the publisher charged, right. usually based on what kind of discount they could get out of the publisher. In that model, um, a retailer has to cut costs. And they do it by several different ways. Number one is they crowd things. The aisles between the shelves aren't as wide. There are, The shelves go higher. There's, you know, maybe there isn't carpeting on the floor. Maybe they just have, uh, you know, tiling or something like that. Um, there's not as many employees who are around restocking the, the shelves, and so they tend to get a bit more disorganized. Um, a lot of people don't like that, you know. They're, they feel like it's worth those extra few dollars to go at, at and uh, shop at a more full-service bookstore where they don't have to go through that. Right. Um, I should say another thing, another classic sign of um, a discounter is that the employees there often are paid minimum wage and they don't know one book from another. Hmm. Um, you know, you, the classic story on discoun- discounters in bookstores is, you know, you go in and ask the employee, where can I find a copy of Moby Dick? And the employee has no idea... What Moby Dick is, a little alone, where it would be found in his store. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, you know whether that's true or it ever happened or not, I have no idea. But that's the idea behind a discounter. You figure the, the customers are going to find what they need. Don't worry, just get it out there where they can get it. Um,
0: and that's kind the, of how the other model, out. the Desert oh,
1: Book model, is right. a full service model. You know, you can go to the employee; they know what you're talking about. Right. Um, is that
0: true is that is that the desert book experience i've never really talked to employees at a desert book
1: well i i don't know how well that's true anymore this goes to, back to percept, per, to you know perceptions about the industry more than every anything these things are built on perceptions if you go into a seagull book and tape compared to a desert book you it will feel more crowded okay whether the employees themselves actually know more or not I don't know. Okay, but it, it feels like you got.
0: Feels like you have more um, support there.
1: You know, it does feel that way, and um, you know, traditionally, full-service bookstores have trained their employees, and they tend to hire people that are more literate. But more and more so today, in mainstream bookstores, the Barnes and Nobles. Um, you know, I, to be honest, my experience in Barnes and Noble uh, around the country is that. Um, the stores around the country, outside of here in New York, the employees don't really know any more than a discounter's employees would know. Right. Um, but if you go into the employees here in the book, Binds and Novels here in New York, they tend to know what they're uh, talking about, mainly because of the size of the audience they're drawing from. Um, they know they can't get away from it, and New York is a pretty heavily, heavy book reading population. Um and i don't know if but, we should talk about this
0: and i don't know if we should talk about this now or later but i would love to hear you contrast those two experiences from going into a bench benchmark books or you know a, pr- a privately owned uh bookstore
1: benchmark books and uh, the few other book dealers i don't think you should even really call them bookstores so much as book dealers um it's a completely different experience because they're dealing with a different kind of clientele and a different kind of book they're looking specifically for people that are highly interested in specific content and as a result they carry used stuff and they carry rare stuff this is more why they're dealers because they need to know outside of what the publisher tells them what something is worth right um if if uh, you know benchmark knows if you go into benchmark with a a, a 19 13 book of mormon or doctrine and covenants benchmark knows what it's worth and they will tell you i will pay you x amount of dollars for it okay <laughs> um you know if you go into desert book and i'm i i'm pretty sure this is the case they don't even deal with used and rare books right and so they're not interested in, in even knowing what it's worth okay. okay okay uh again it's a different model of of selling books
0: And those are maybe the three main models in the LDS market? Is that right?
1: I think those are the three main models overall. Um, There are others. Uh, There's, you know, door-to-door sales. There's Internet sales is kind of a different model, and that may be splintering into different kinds of, or may have splintered already into different kinds of stores. Um, uh, There's, you know, there's everything from, you know, kind of the book party type idea, kind of the equivalent of the Avon party, you know. <laughs> Tupperware. That kind of stuff goes on. There's you know, school book fairs, and um, it it goes on. There's legion ways of selling books.
0: Okay. Um, so, um...
1: But in terms of stores, those are the main ones, Ah, uh, yeah.
0: So Siegel ran into a bit of trouble or ill will with Deseret Book by undercutting them price-wise, maybe a little bit too much? Is that kind of how the story went?
1: Well, it's it's a little bit, that's a little simplistic and probably not quite the right uh, thing. Um, publishers, as you might imagine, always care about how their books are displayed and merchandised and sold. And at least according to Deseret Book, the issue that they ran into this was uh, more than just more than six years six months ago when the issue first arose, um, at least in the public. Uh, desert book was complaining that seagull book wasn't displaying their books well they you know and and to be honest the thing that flabbergasted me about the whole thing is my attitude was well they're a discounter; they don't display anything well <laughs> <laughs> right but um you know a desert book apparently was not happy with how it was going uh, you know it's a matter of sometimes position where the books are put on the shelves who gets end, end caps who gets, um, you know, prominent position? What well, books are advertised? Uh, but is it is not back to of... what I was saying about uh, about publishers owning chains of bookstores. The problem with it, a publisher owning a chain of bookstore is they the bookstore gets put in this conflicting position. Do we promote our the our sister publishers' books, or do we publish promote the books of everyone else? If the bookstore was independent, they'd choose according to what they thought best. But when the bookstore is owned by a publisher, they have this potential of this conflict of interest, really. I should be pushing the books of um, uh, of the publisher that I work with. And so um, it's widely thought and widely believed in among uh, publishers and even booksellers in the LDS market that when it came time for the big sales pushes at Christmas time, for example, um, you know, Desert Book was putting, giving all their books, Desert Book titles, prominent positions in their stores. And sure enough, Siegel was doing the same thing. They'd give prominent position to Covenant communications titles instead of Desert Book or anybody else. So, you know, it, it's kind of unfair in a sense to somebody that doesn't have a line of bookstores because you don't have a place where you can push your books.
0: Well, it sounds uh, it sounds a little odd for... For Desert Book to say you're not uh, you're not selling enough of my books the way that I want you to you're not pushing my books the way that I would want you to. Um, that's
1: when when it came down to it and the issue hit the public. That's the line that Desert Book was com- was claiming you're not doing a good job of merchandising our books. I'm sure part of it was Desert Book was comparing the sales that they saw through Siegel stores compared to the sales that they saw through their own own stores. You know. Factoring in some of the differences between the stores and saying, what's going on? Our sales are so much lower in Siegel stores than they are in Desert Book stores. Why? We should be selling better than this. It
0: seems like Siegel should be able to decide how they want to. I mean, they're the ones who have made the risks and the investments. They should be able to decide what they want to sell and how.
1: Absolutely. And what happened last summer was Desert Book said, well, fine. Yeah, you can decide how you want to merchandise things we can also decide whether or not we'll sell you our books at all. And they gave Seagull a month or so and said, at the end of this month we're pulling all of our books and we're not going to ship any new books to you.
0: And I I remember the outrage on the blogger knuckle and the internet about that. Did they end up following through on that or did that get pulled?
1: Well, what happened was uh, Covenant... claimed that they had been caught off guard about the whole thing and didn't even know there was uh, that much of an issue. I'm sure they'd received communications over the time from Desert Books saying, I don't like this, blah, 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 why don't you do this? And, and uh, you know, again, part of it's the difference in the model between the two stores. Siegel Books sells discounted. They don't want to put time and effort into doing all this merchandising. Um, so, uh, you know, they don't want to spend time fulfilling exactly what Desert Book wanted. Okay? Right, sure. That's costs them extra money, which decreases their profits and their ability to stay in business. So, you know, it's a different model. That's undoubtedly part of the problem that they ran into. Anyway, Covenant came back to them said, "Hey, let's talk about it. Let's sit down and negotiate." So they sat down and negotiated. Um the the deadline was put off for a month and the item the issue disappeared from the news. Hmm. Um for, you know, until last week.
0: <laughs> and uh, that's um, when we learned about the acquisition.
1: Yes. Now, apparently, apparently, the these talks, this negotiation over what to do, was what led to the acquisition to begin with. Um, uh, Luke Hofer, the guy that owned Siegel and and um, Covenant until last week, um went into those meetings and according to the statements that both he and desert book made to the press they you know had a warm and fuzzy time they both got to the point where they respected each other's uh, other's positions and liked what they, the other person was doing and understood and lou says lou coford says that he has for the past few years been looking for a way because he's an older gentleman at this point in his 60s.
0: Grandfather. Sure. He's a grandfather.
1: Yeah, he's a grandfather, he says. He said that in the press reports he's a grandfather. He was looking for a way to get out.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, we've heard this before, you know. That's the, one of the problems in the LDS book industry, is you build this business, How? what's your exit strategy? How do you get out? Okay? And... Um, <laughs> I'm sure that this is part of the reason behind BookCraft being sold to, to uh desert book. You know, where do you sell? Is there somebody else that's, that's got the financial resources to take on the acquisition of a BookCraft or a Siegel Book and Tape and Covenant? Um, They're fairly large companies. Right. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, Desert Book's the only place in town where you can sell it.
0: So, you know, this... The the question of motive is a is an interesting one. Let's just start there, if you don't mind. You know, okay. I, I I imagine that the president of Deseret Book uh, remind me of her name, Sherry Dew. Sherry Dew. I imagine mm-hmm. she's under tremendous pressure to make Deseret Book as as profitable or, or at least as self sustaining as possible. So I think it would absolutely. be absolutely for for the conspiratorial. No, I would say profitable. Profitable. And
1: it's not just self sustaining; right. it's profitable.
0: And for the okay. cons- and I'm sure there's conspiratorial minded people out there who are thinking that this is all about censorship, about a desire to control the message and to make sure that everything's correlated. But I would say it would be a mistake to underestimate the, the profit motive going on here. Is that right? Or what do you think? What's your opinion?
1: You, I think you are right. It is, it is unwise to, to think of it as, um, as not about profit. It is, to a good extent, about profit. Jerry Dew is expected to turn a profit. All of the businesses that are owned by Desert Management, Desert Management is, of course, the holding company that holds all of the for-profit operations of the church, including KSL Radio and TV, the Desert News, and you could go on and on. Tons and tons of real estate holdings. You can go on and on and on. There's a ton of stuff that the church owns this way. And, yes, those businesses are expected to turn a profit. They're expected to you know, turn money back into the church that the church then can use for funding its non-profit operations, you know. They help pay for temples, they help pay for the meeting houses, they help pay for the salaries of people that help clean the meeting houses, you know. That is the people that do the deep cleaning after all the members have gone around and done their weekly cleaning, Right.
0: Right, right. So, so from a member's perspective, from a faithful member's perspective, then why shouldn't we say, well, this is good. If this makes Deseret book more profitable, it's going to mean cleaner chapels and more temples and more missionary work and more BYUs. So what's, I guess that's a way of transition, transitioning into the question of why is this good or bad? What are the benefits and costs to this as a people and as a church?
1: Well, again, I, it comes back a sense to a, an idea of whether you think it's it should be about money or not. Okay. Okay. Um, if if money is the only issue here, then it does tend to make sense. Um, if money's not the only issue, then there's certainly other things that um, should enter into this. Um, there's an ethical dimension in a sense. If this is if this is in fact created a monopoly. Regardless of whether it's a legal monopoly or just one that acts and talks and does everything that a monopoly does, okay? if there's a monopoly, then there's an ethical dimension to this, isn't there? The church shouldn't be owning a monopoly. And, you know, monopolies, we've pretty much decided in the Western world that monopolies are an unethical and bad thing. So, therefore, it shouldn't happen, regardless of the money involved. Um, take take drill down one Monopolies level. earn money monopolies ex- the reason that monopolies uh, when they exist work is because they earn more money than they would separate okay right so
0: but from a, from an average member of the church i I think that people trust the church I think the church is in many ways obviously trustworthy and they'd say Absolutely. hey I don't care if, if if the Mormon church or the LDS church has a monopoly on the Mormon book publishing industry they should and that's a good thing why would anyone? think otherwise
1: what well are there some are arguments? other effects of a monopoly beyond and the other other effects of this this acquisition beyond just the monopoly aspects okay um I mean obviously a uh, monopolies do have um things that hurt individual members in a, mon- in a- monopoly the prices tend to go up, so individual members tend to pay more for their books and tapes and other products okay okay so that's what happens in a monopoly higher prices uh, Right, higher prices. Um, in this case, because authors are involved, um, there, you know, this has been said before by many people. Likely outcome here is that there will be, over time, not initially, but over time, a reduction in the number of titles and the number of authors that Desert Book and Covenant together are publishing. Okay? And it's possible because they're such a huge portion of the market and have all the marketing power that not only will authors uh, there be fewer authors, but the ones that are there could end up getting their royalty rates cut, for example. They'd end up earn less money okay, okay.
0: so fewer authors uh, and less money per fewer, author.
1: fewer authors, less money per author, uh, fewer um, more, higher prices for consumers. All of these things raise the bottom line for Deseret Book, and therefore for the church. But it's coming at our expense.
0: So let me right? ask you. Let me ask you a broader question then. Um, you know, I know the church would love every member to spend you know thirty minutes to an hour reading the scriptures every day, right? And I'm sure most members maybe are falling short of that goal. If, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that if 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 members weren't reading scriptures, the church's next preference would be for them to be reading books written by general authorities talking about the scriptures or about, you know, life experiences. So, so why is that bad? What, what if this leads to fewer books, but the books that are available are general authority books uh, or the scriptures, you know, why is there a need for something more than that within Mormonism? I don't, you know, I, I don't mean to be glib, but you know, there's someone well, that could I, argue the the brethren's books, along with the scriptures, are pretty much all we should be worrying about.
1: I, I don't think you're being glib at all. And I think this is actually an important question, yeah, and one that has to be decided. Um, I would love the church to decide differently than it has, because the church's position has all has often been, you know, you don't need all this other stuff; it's superfluous. But yet, on the other hand. They go and they sponsor plays, and they sponsor musical events, and they pay for the salaries of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the salaries of uh, researchers in the history department who write books. And the reason they do this is because all of these things are important. Culture does make a difference. Okay? It helps people become stronger and better members of the Church. I can't tell you the number of, of people... Well, I'll, let me give you an example, a pretty concrete example. Um, I'm One of the uh, arrangements I have here in New York is to um, distribute the publications of a small artist group here in New York called the Mormon Artists Group. And the Mormon Artists Group um, asked Richard Bushman, in the wake of his book Rough Stone Rolling, to keep a diary of his um, of his travels and his um his e- efforts promoting rough stone rolling right well, this has been put together. They published it as a limited edition volume, limited to a hundred copies. Those copies are of course all sold out they 're all gone um, but in the wake of going through that and it's distributing those um, those books, I got responses from people you know I heard people 's reactions not just to this book, but to Rough Stone Rolling. And, And the number of people that have said to me, I'm not even the person behind the book, but have said to me Richard Bushman's book Rough Stone Rolling is wonderful. I finally feel like I understand what was going on. I feel like a part of the church. It's brought me back to the church because nobody had addressed issues like Joseph Smith's polygamy. Issues like, you know, Joseph Smith's gold digging, and so on and so forth. Rough Stone Rolling, according to the responses I'm getting, has brought in, some inactive members back to the church because they finally feel like somebody's standing up and telling everything. And, they, you know, in a sense, it's an issue of um, what voices you can hear. With Before Rough Stone Rolling, there weren't church bush- books that addressed some of the issues that were going on nobody was saying well this was this and this was this and 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 making a plausible case for Joseph st- still being a prophet and instead the only books you could find were the ones that said oh because of this and this and this of polygamy and because of grave digging I'm uh, not grave digging or treasure digging and all those kind of things Joseph Smith isn't a prophet you know, you see what I'm saying Sure. nobody's out, out making the case so having these cultural things going on, books, having films, having plays that we can go to, uh, having LDS music that we can listen to, it gives us an alternative that's purely Mormon that will help build our testimonies and help us become better members of the Church. And if you lose the culture, then people will get swamped by the broader cultures around them, and they'll lose their faith as a result.
0: And you don't think that the Church can monolithically create a culture that's uh, satisfying to that end?
1: It's chosen not to. Regardless whether it can or not, it has chosen not to. Back in the 70s, this is something I left out of the uh, LDS publishing history that we talked about earlier. Back in the 70s, the Church reorganized in a big way. This is when President Kimball became the prophet, Um, and... In fact, I've, there's a kind of a funny little story I heard along these lines. That um, when he became prophet, he brought in some management consultants to look at how the church was run as an organization. And they all sat down at the table, and the management consultants said to President Kimball, "Tell us how many. We've got this information we need to be able to do our job. Tell us how many buildings does the church own." President Kimball turned to the appropriate people at the table and said, "Give them the number." And they said, "We don't know." <laughs> <laughs> and they went and asked another question: How many employees does the church have? And President Kimball turned to the appropriate person at the table. We don't know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and apparently it went down to the down the line. Almost every question, we'll have to get back to you with this information. Um, these are basic questions you need to know in, in running an organization. Okay, sure. And they didn't know. Okay. Look the church was a lot smaller now I'm not going to you know I'm not saying this to to say that anybody was at fault or anything like that. The point is that uh, you know at that point in time they had to figure out really what should the church be doing and what shouldn't be doing and right. be doing sure as a result of those of those um, uh, of those discussions a lot of changes were made uh, at that point in time they Changed the names of all the wards and stakes. Okay, so whereas before you had here in out in Washington D.C. it was the Washington D.C. stake and the, the um, and the uh, Chesapeake stake. Okay, they had a formalized system for naming, and what was the Chesapeake stake became the Silver Spring Maryland stake, and you had to have both the name of the, of a city or location and the state in the name of the stake okay <laughs> right. or else it wasn't a valid name okay right um that's still true today okay they they reorganized the church magazines so instead of the improvement era and uh the children's friend that they had beforehand they consolidated everything to just those three magazines that we're so familiar with today okay uh, the IHC, the hospitals that were owned by the church, were spun off into their own thing because the church decided, this isn't part of our mission. This isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Okay? Um, and, and at that point in time, I believe, in a large way, the church decided, okay, we, what we are supposed to be about doing. And they said, look at a lot of the cultural stuff and said, most of this stuff isn't part of the core mission of the church. It isn't spo- what we're supposed to be doing. OK, okay. Now, I'm not going to argue that they were wrong. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I am saying that because culture is needed, OK, it means that members of the church should go ahead and produce their own. And that's what we've done over the past, you know, 30 plus years since then. Well, and
0: one, If, one, if one, anything, we need to do more. One caveat I'd, I'd maybe make to that is I've been watching. I, I love music in the spoken word. And it's really been ramped up. I mean, they have full orchestras now, and they have guest uh, performers come in. And, and with the um, with the creation of that uh, conference center, there has been a lot of uh, even creative works done, plays or musicals, that were church-sponsored. Wouldn't you agree with that?
1: That's right. There's only a few that are, that are done, and they're very oriented towards uh, Salt Lake. Um, uh, you know that there are a number of... Um, I don't know, people generally don't know this, but there are Mormon choirs in other places around the the, uh, the United States, and those um, those choirs are often uh, run by donations and by, by people themselves instead of being run by the Church. So even though there's a demand and a need for regional choirs to do the same role that the Mormon Tabernacle Choir does, the Church doesn't fund it. Right, okay. okay. And you know, should they? I, I'm not saying that they should. I am saying that those choirs need to exist, and there's a role for them to play, and they exist in Southern California and in Arizona and in Washington, D.C., and um, there's one I heard about in Rich- Richmond, Virginia, and one in Colorado. They exist because the members feel like they need to exist, and they're willing to put the effort into doing it.
0: So what's... Um, is, is- do you think that I mean? Do you think the church is discouraging that culture from developing then, or what do you think the church's no, role fact, should quite be? Quite the contrary. In, what should the church's role be in encouraging books? And... Quite
1: to the contrary. Okay. the southern The Southern California Mormon Choir gets used at church functions. They invite them to come and sing. Okay. The same thing with the Washington D.C. Mormon Choir and these other choirs. They do get. I've heard the the Arizona Mormon Choir seeing at the mesa temple okay okay um you know the church isn't saying they shouldn't exist they're fairly neutral on the on the question maybe even supportive in terms of the support that local that local leaders give to these organizations um they're but they don't fund it right okay not to any significant extent and certainly not from salt lake there's sometimes um i would imagine that some some stakes find it in their budget to, to you know throw a few dollars to some of these organizations but you know it's not salaries um not that the mormon Tabernacle aqua choir makes salaries but it, you know it's it's not a full line of equipment and support that um you know that other organizations might expect um
0: so your your concern the bottom is line, that line is
1: culture is important and the church has chosen they're not going to they're not going to be the supportive organization
0: this program has been a production of mormon stories podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archive of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today.